If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, here we go. Bottom of the hour, uh, bottom of the second hour on Thursday. It's the sound and the fury. They are in the house. Anthony Fury, Sun Papers National Columnist. A good afternoon to you, sir. Hello, gentlemen. Happy Thursday. And happy, happy. Peter Tabbins, the MPP for Toronto Danforth, the NDP's critic for energy and the climate crisis. Hey, John. Good to see you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, when did that title revision come? I'm used to uh, not hearing climate last crisis. Summer. Last summer. Is last that summer? when the crisis started? Well, no. no after Christmas. revised the title. The climate uh-huh. conflagration. It's been upgraded. I was reading old copy. <laughs> He's giving me a promotion almost every show, and you gotta you gotta listen to the climate apocalypse by next week. <laughs> that's that's right. No, no, a month or two. Armageddon. Yeah, we're all on the clock. Uh, and you know there is a crisis of sorts. I don't know how you guys read it, but the World Health Organization just before we hit the air declared this coronavirus thing a global health emergency. Yep. Uh, makes sense to you, or are we panicking needlessly, unnecessarily? How do you see it, Anthony? Oh, I, I didn't know they, they'd done this declaration, John, World Health Organization speaking, because I wasn't tuned into that. I was too tuned into the fact that John Tory and, and others now have this rolling roadshow of multiple press conferences uh, where they are talking about how, how some sort of racism or prejudice is the real scourge here. And I, I, was trying to, I was trying to kind of find the evidence of what all of this is, John, and I he has maybe one or two ill-toward tweets, and they're pretty angry that Chinese parents have concerns about the school system. So, WHO, I, I, I don't know, John. I'm just too busy listening to John Tory. I'll be honest. I find that the, the press conferences from the mayor, not only was he making a fool out of himself, I think he was making a fool of the city. I think he's making the city look like this cesspool of hate when this stuff ain't happening. And he's compromised our public health officials. They agreed to stand up at these politicized press conferences Meanwhile, so you, you call them into doubt because they're po- political statements here. We're supposed to be trusting these people as above board. Meanwhile, the WHO is talking about doing much more stringent things to deal with all this. And that's what we should be talking about here. So I'm not surprised they declared it a global emergency. When you look at, I, I follow different epidemiologists and infectious disease experts right now. And there's a lot of unknown variables. That's what has people worried. Are we going to see things expand more here? comparable to what they have there, or at least, you know, in in relative proportion and so forth. Many unknowns out there right now, and I I think we do need to be cautious and nervous with every step of the way we take. I'm not surprised uh, they did this, and I think we should follow suit with the WHO. All right. Well, uh, in the fact that uh, he is citing that the mayor yesterday, Councillor Cressy, uh, Kristen Wong-Tam, were saying that there was xenophobia and racism underlying uh, these calls to quarantine people coming back from mainland China. do you subscribe to that? Do you think it's racist and xenophobic? Well, I, I'll deal with two parts. Uh, the first part is I think the World Health Organization is a credible body. And if they say there's a global emergency and that we should be putting in the kinds of assessment and screening that's necessary to protect people, then I'm going to listen to them. Uh, but I, I do see uh, racism on the part of some people saying that if you're Chinese, you're going to cause me to get sick. And that's that's unrealistic. That's not fair. Uh, is it racist? Yeah, I think that is. If well, you if you say that just because you have a particular ethnic background that you're a source of disease, 
I consider that racist. I agree, and I haven't heard anyone say that, and that's the problem. Once once someone comes out and does it, someone uh, you know assaults a person, vandalizes a restaurant, John Tory and I we're gonna you know stand there and lock arms, and we're gonna stand up for that person. Uh, but I think I think the mayor's kind of fomenting fear. I'm sure well, you can find a tweet or two because you know at any moment you can find any idiot saying something on social media. But uh, I don't know. The main thing I've heard from John, people writing to me and so forth, are, are, are predominantly Chinese parents who are concerned about the fact that they have neighbors who they know traveled abroad for the Lunar New Year. And they are the ones who are circulating this petition saying, we'd like these people to be quarantined for two weeks, which maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Uh, various other countries are doing it. And it seems to be wise. Uh, there's one thing it's not, though. It may, may be vaguely alarmist. It's not racist. This is up in York Region. You cited that in a recent column of yours. Chinese-Canadian families are equally concerned about, as I say, their colleagues from their own community are returning, as Anthony says, from their Lunar New Year. How is that racism? I think the other side of this, John, really, though, is um, it was an interesting story from a a Chinese parent the other day saying that her son was harassed in the schoolyard uh, because kids were saying, you've got coronavirus, you're going to make us sick. Um, That kind of stuff is very much out there. Uh, I don't think it's everybody, but where you see it, you have to condemn it. You don't understand what's going on with the disease and you can't come to grips with it if you think it's just because of someone's ethnicity. And you're right, Anthony, if there's an assault on a restaurant, um, then I think people will come together and oppose that. But I think you have to get the information out really early on that this is not simply an ethnic matter. Uh, We've got a large public health issue here. We need to listen to the authorities, the people who understand how to deal with it. And simply slipping into, um, if you're Chinese, you're a carrier of the disease, is racist and something we need to oppose early because we don't want it to get to the stage where people are acting crazy or violent. All right. If if I can use the triage term, though, I agree with everything Peter said, but I think the bigger concern right now is let's work on on stopping this being an outbreak and right. working on stopping it from spreading. And that's kind of, that's the B side of the album. It's very much true, but let's focus on not all getting sick. What do you make of Australia? They've decided that folks coming back from China are going to be quarantined on an island, Christmas Island, in the Indian Ocean. Yeah, that 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 is irresponsible. The, the Australian medical authorities say that's inappropriate. Uh, if someone is coming back from China and... The health authorities think a quarantine is necessary based on evidence, then I'm not going to argue that. But if you've got someone quarantined and they get sick, if I, as I understand that Christmas Island, there are not appropriate medical facilities. This is not something that you can defend. If people who are our citizens come back from China and they get sick, I want them to be in a hospital where they're getting the medical care that they need properly isolated, as you would with any contagious disease. But putting someone on what's effectively a prison island That's not responsible, and it's contrary to everything that people in public health are telling us to do. Well, the Americans, likewise, are bringing people back, I guess, on a flight, and they're going to be quarantined in California as well. Would it be wrong for us to do something similar to that, Anthony, up at, uh, I don't know, Base Borden, for example? Uh, to Peter's point, I mean, you don't want to say you guys are in military lockdown. If you can if you can outfit Borden or what have you or Meaford to uh, have some sort of medical facilities for people, then that's what matters, because this is ultimately about caring for these people and, and just 
just isolating them from the population until he can figure out whether they have it or not. I mean, Peter makes a good point about the Christmas Island thing. It's not, I don't care the symbolism of it being in an island or whatnot, you know, go ahead and do that. But if they don't have the medical facilities, it does seem a bit of a disconnect. But the basic idea in quarantine, that's not a disconnect at all. In England, they're having their returning passengers sign a contract saying, you're getting on this plane, that means you know you're going to be quarantined for two weeks. We want to be clear on that. England's also telling people who return from all of China, regardless of what flight they are, they would like them to self-quarantine for two weeks. We've heard people here in Canada who were on some of these recent flights, including people who were on the flights with the husband and wife who now have it, that they have chosen to self-quarantine. No one told them to, but they wanted to do it to not infect others and to see if they have And I say to them, thank you for your civic-mindedness. I think that's a, a very, very reasonable and, and considerate thing to do. And bosses should be... Uh, compliant or accommodating in that regard. Again, they should be, yeah. Anthony Fury with us, Sun Papers National columnist Peter Tabbins. He's the NDP's critic for energy and the climate crisis. So on this energy file, Peter, i got to ask you, because I know uh, you've written about uh, something that the Ford government quietly spent $1.56 billion on, quote, electricity price mitigation, but they haven't reduced anyone's hydro bill. What's going on? Effectively, what we've got, John, is a situation where a lot of the problems that were put in place by the Liberals, and they were terrible at managing the electricity system, are just being perpetuated by the Conservatives. A bad system before, a system that continues to be bad, where they're borrowing massive amounts of money to keep prices down instead of dealing with the fundamental problems in the electricity system. It's been privatized, so it's profit-driven. When there's a choice on the part of the regulator to take undue profits from... Hydro One, the $2.6 billion they got as a gift from the provincial government when they were privatized. When there's a choice about returning that money to the customers, us, or leaving it with the investors, they're saying leave most of it with the investors. The Ford government could say to the Ontario Energy Board, your directive is the first consideration is looking after the customers, the people who are trying to pay their bills and keep a roof over their head. Uh, we've got that. Um, they aren't dealing with other issues around time, mandatory time of use. There are a variety of things that they could be doing to deal with the, the deep problems we have in the system. I'm not seeing it happen. What I'm seeing them doing is borrowing and spending a lot more money to subsidize prices. And we know that we can't, we can't do that forever. The prices are continuing to go up. The price of electricity that is covered up by these subsidies is going up by about 5% a year. And that's sort of ticking in the background while they're taking on all this extra debt. They actually need to come to grips with this file, and I don't see any evidence that they are. None. All right. The original proposal, I guess, when uh, part of Hydro One was privatized, uh, was that the dividends from the retained shares by the province would be paid back to the ratepayer in part, and that would subsidize or decrease their hydro bills by 12%. Was that the argument, if I've got it right? Well, I don't think it's enough there to actually reduce it by 12%. I never saw a credible plan from the Conservatives to take the price that we had on Election Day and reduce it by a further 12%. They made that promise, but no policy person that I can find in the energy field can tell me that they had a substantial plan. And right now, I think they're just flailing around. But your plan with the NDP was to buy back Hydro One. Buy back, well, a variety of things, John. Buy back Hydro One, reduce the amount of profit that can be made by generating companies who are regulated by the Ontario Energy Board, uh, take profits, uh, sorry, gifts like I was telling you, the $2.6 billion given to Hydro One, 
give that back to customers. There are a variety of things that you could do. Yeah, but the buyback would have cost an exorbitant amount. There would have been a premium placed on that. Anthony, do you follow I, this I, file at all? You know, I, I, I do. I've written on it a bit. And, and like when the Eagles released their 90s album, Hell's Freezing Over, I agree with Peter Tabbins <laughs> on, on quite a lot of things here. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, God, uh, John, shut down the show. We've, we've come uh, to the uh, end no, on, on a number of... Well, <laughs> well look, I, I think that we're seeing from the PCs similar things to what the Wynn government did in terms of kicking the can down the road on this. I do think the NDP was the leader to first call for getting the HST off the home heating, which was an important thing to do. And Andrew Horvath told me once, and Peter can tell me whether this is on on the front lines or not, reopen some of those contracts and take a look at them. I have a much more hardline view on it. There have been legal assessments, academic papers written on the fact that you can tear up some of these contracts with impunity and they can't sue you to court because then you can actually light legislation uh, nulling and voiding some of these contracts. I think we've got to do a lot of things to blow up the system and, and to get rid of uh, some of these contracts, the profit margins, and to completely obliterate this global adjustment fee and how we do it and, and, and go back to the whole drawing board on the system. You know, your colleague out there in B.C., John Horgan. Yep. He's had to stand down. The uh, Supreme Court ruled against uh, his position on this Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, Two major pipeline projects now the courts have said they're good to go. they got to go ahead. Real setback for the Green Movement, isn't it? Well, I'd say that the reality with public opinion is that 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 in fact is moving away from where the courts are going. Uh, There's no getting around it. The Supreme Court made their ruling. They made their ruling, and John Horgan's going to have to respect that. But I don't think that's going to change how people see the climate crisis itself, and I don't think it's going to change the way people feel about this development. Well, when you say, well, people feel about this development, you've got native groups there that uh, are seeing this as the key out of poverty and uh, to prosperity. So why would you beggar them because you think that you've got the righteous path to take? Uh, They want the pipelines to go through. Well, there may well be people who think the pipeline should go through, but the other reality is a lot of people are opposed to it on the ground. there are going to be substantial consequences to having that Trans Mountain Pipeline go through. And you and I have talked about this before, John, the threat of spills. Uh, and you asked me at the Somebody time about did an spills. Audit. Somebody did an audit and said the amount of spills uh, from pipelines in Canada last year would roughly fill about a third of an Olympic-sized pool. Is that significant? Um I don't believe it would be a third of an Olympic-sized pool, not from the numbers that I've seen. But beyond that, if you have a spill in a water source, uh, if you have it over an aquifer, you can do an awful lot of damage with a very small amount of oil. I had a friend of mine, well, a friend of mine, the MPP for Nickel Belt, had a train derailment in her riding a number of years ago. Uh, They were carrying bitumen from Alberta. They never could get it cleaned up. You know, it contaminated the local river. I'm all right. So the few, Supreme few Court rail cars right there is uh, the amount of an Olympic-sized swimming are pool. Are you basically saying, though, the Supreme Court made a ruling without taking into consideration uh, long-term consequences? So uh, they no. erred in their judgment because this is the way the system works in this country. Anthony, how do you perceive this, John? This is great news for the Green Movement because now we've got this situation where where they can drop their sort of fake activism about this issue because of course creating this pipeline creating energy east means we're going to be able to export more canadian oil use more canadian oil domestically get off this saudi oil get off the venezuela oil and the activists can go okay the game is up and then they can go focus on the things that they know are the real problems like china's coal policies and india's coal policy so it's kind of a win for everyone i mean i think saint greta she's going to be able to get on her little catamaran and you know head over to kerala india or head over to wuhan china and go and uh 
you know, shut down the coal plants there. I, I really look forward to the development in their activism. What about the coal export terminal there in Burnaby, I guess it is, just outside of Vancouver, sending all this coal to China? They're ramping up, Peter. I mean, to the point that Anthony's making. I know Andrew Shear also suggested this, and McKay also uh, running for the leadership of the Conservative Party thinks that's one way of fighting climate change. Liquid well, natural gas and a cleaner Canadian oil. I'm going to go back first to your question about the judges and the Supreme Court. Supreme Court interprets the law, and that's what they do. And they came to a conclusion in law that BC didn't have the legal right to block or vary that that uh, pipeline. Fair enough. But we're talking about a different situation when we're talking about the politics of it. And the politics are that there is going to be a continued push to protect the coastal waters of BC. Uh, that is a huge issue. That has not gone away. And there's going to be a, a big consideration in Canada that expansion of tar sands exploitation is really a problem for the environment. Alberta has the highest greenhouse gas emissions in Canada, higher than we here in Ontario, and they have a much smaller population. There is real concern. That All right, so you think you can win that argument in the court of public opinion and somewhere uh, that well, will if, translate if you, to political uh, change if, as well? If you look at public opinion uh, polling in Canada, people are increasingly worried about the climate crisis, want action on it. And I think it Until really, it costs them. That's an interesting metric as far as that's concerned. They can say as much until they have to pay out of pocket. Two other great metrics I love. The National Energy Board, whenever it uh, passes a project, they go, oh, they're letting it happen. And you look at the fine print, and they usually have on average 200 conditions. That's all about being exceedingly rigorous, the most rigorous in the world. The other stat I really love is when you look at all these different uh, statistics concerning First Nations economic development, whether or not it's the fact that with these pipelines, pretty much all the First Nations communities physically in their path and adjacent to them are getting on board with them. And there's such a positive news story, John, to talk about First Nations, people in Canada right now. I mean, the, the economic prowess they're showing, all the stuff they're doing. You look at the Canadian Aboriginal Business Council, all the releases they put out. I think all I'm hearing is good news stories on these fronts. That's yeah. reconciliation there. there no, that's go. not reconciliation because I've talked to First Nations communities in Northern Ontario who are very friendly about the risk of fire. We saw this past summer communities that had to be evacuated because of fire. They're going to see more of that. Uh, fire from I, what? Forest fires. Forest fires that are accelerating and getting bigger because the world's getting hotter and the interior of North America wow. is getting drier. I'm not sure but, that can be substantiated. No, it can be substantiated. Come on, John. Well, historically, we've had forest fires we in have. northern Ontario. And, and we get far more of them now and they're bigger. Well, maybe because and, more people are living in areas where no, there are forests. that's not true. Let it's, me ask you about something else from the West Coast while I've still got a moment or two. Uh, I see where your colleague in the Sun, Brian Lilly, was writing about Justin Trudeau gifting MasterCard 50 million dollars priceless uh, <laughs> that was yeah that was a takeaway did you read Hansard to get that line <laughs> uh, mastercard's going to invest 510 million and the federal government's kicking in 50 to start a global intelligence and cybersecurity center with 380 jobs in van money well spent would you say anthony you know wow a glo- if we need this global whatever security thing that sounds like something the government should be doing so go ahead and do it as for mastercard not at all whether it's loblaws or bombardier or well lavalin they're willing to you know do all these legal uh, shenanigans for them. No, we got to get out of the corporate welfare game. And, you know, it's happening everywhere, though. And, and you do get a new government in. And, and I, well, the P- Peter's friends in the PC government, they, you know, the, the Ford government right now, they are actually still doing some corporate welfare. And I'm I'm against that. Justin Trudeau's doing corporate welfare. I mean, you know, it's like everybody, uh, everybody take a swig. And I think we got to, we got to get off the product. Yeah. And I, you know, 
our caucus in Parliament saying the same thing. This should not be happening. MasterCard has more than enough money. If the government of Canada wants to set up a lab for development of cybersecurity, all power to them, because I think it's going to be a, a critical technology right. for us in the years to come. But I have noticed MasterCard does have a few dollars to rub together. Uh, I think that they could well afford to set up whatever lab they wanted. If they have concern about people, then reduce their interest rates on their cards. That would make people very happy. Finally, uh, the report that came out yesterday, and we talked to the lead author, it had to do with uh, just re-examining Canada's broadcasting industry uh, in its various iterations and streaming. They want to tax streaming services. I don't know how you would do that practically, uh, but the takeaway was, well, they're kind of duty-bound because they have Canadian uh clientele, so to produce Canadian content and so on and so forth. They also want to end advertising for the CBC, but extend that journalism fund to broadcast media. Uh, Make sense to you any of these things, all of the above, none of the above, Anthony? Not so much, and I heard the lady on the program earlier kindly explaining it to you, and that was a good pretzel act about how, you know, (laughs) less choice makes one's freer or so forth. I don't know what was going on there. Look, I I think this is a matter of, of, you know, a solution to a problem that doesn't so much exist vis-a-vis Netflix, say. I mean, people are People are subscribing. They're having a good time. They like the programming. Sometimes you go, okay, I got too many stream services. I'm going to cancel this or that. Amazon Prime has some Canadian programming. Some of it is just shot in Canada, but it's not written by Canadians or produced. Others are produced by them. I actually produced a feature film a number of years ago that is available on Amazon Prime. I mean, there's lots of stuff going on. So what's the problem? I, I don't think there is one. As for CBC, I think they should go back to their core mandate. I mean, being in, you know, both you and I are two different uh, competing sort of traditional media firms, I don't know why the CBC is competing with us. That's what I wondered from time immemorial. So in other words, if they don't have any advertisements on any of their platforms, would you increase their federal subsidy, meaning the taxpayer's got to front more money for the CBC? Or well, are they just a redundant right now, declining viewership, let them die on the vine, or people who like them would support them with their own cash? Yeah, I, I don't think they're redundant. I don't think they're dying on the vine. I think having a, a national broadcaster is a really good thing for knitting the country together. We did that. We set it up in the beginning so that we would have a national voice. Increasingly, uh, we see American domination in programming. Having a national broadcaster is something that we need to have. And frankly, to have them in a situation right off the top where there's no advertising for news and public affairs means that they're going to be more independent in their journalism. And the more voices we have from different perspectives, the better. If it's all controlled or driven by uh, considerations of corporate advertising, I think that's a problem. Okay. John, if there's no Murdoch mysteries to bring us together, Canada would like splinter into sectarian <laughs> Middle East. We'd be beating each other up in the streets. You know, we need this. We that, need this. That is the tie that binds. No question about it. Okay, we'll let you go on that note. I appreciate it, guys. Uh, a lot of things covered. Anthony Fury, Sun Papers National columnist. Peter Tabins. He's the NDP's critic for energy and the climate crisis. We'll see you all next week. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.